Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Owen Jones, all things Israel. Uh, you were saying he just wrote an article recently that was interesting to you, Human Shields, was it? He did a video essay about Human Shields and the way it's talked about in the press, but, uh, you know, what the evidence is on both sides and whether it's Hamas that's predominantly using human shields and the track record of the Israeli government and IDF using human shields. And I'd like to ask him about his Piers Morgan debate, which went kind of viral. I think I covered it on, yeah. on my show. He's also experiencing like a crazy shadow ban on Facebook where his traffic on Facebook has dropped 95 percent in a month. People are sending him screenshots of even if they get a notification about his content going up, when they click on it, it takes them to other random like animal videos. So there's like a hard band thing going on for him on Facebook. So and there's been some reporting about their, you know, anti-Palestinian bias. So makes sense. All right. Yeah, there's a lot to get to there. So it's before really we do that, though, first of all, um, there were our big, wet, beefy boy, uh, former president, Donald Trump. Um, he, of course, he won the Iowa caucus by like a gazillion votes. Then after that, he went to his $10 million defamation trial in New York, mm -hmm. which, by the way, he didn't have to be at. This was just like the sentencing phase of it or, you know, the time where they determine how much money he's going to have to pay to E. Jean Carroll. Okay. Um, and he didn't have to be there, but he wanted to be there. And this whole big thing blew up in the, uh, in, in the courtroom. And I, I talked about that, but since then... He, uh, I don't think he's been getting much sleep, and he's been going on these, like, tweet binges okay. and saying perhaps a, a little too much. So first, let's start with this one. Now, this is on the idea. They just had a, a, a hearing uh, last week about whether or not Trump gets presidential immunity. And, you know, there was an interesting moment between the judge and uh, Trump's attorney where basically the judge got the Trump attorney to admit, like, actually, you know— in some instances, of course, you can go after him for crimes, right? So his original position was you can't go after him for anything ever. And then it became, well, if you get an impeachment and a conviction in the Senate on that impeachment when he's president, then maybe you could criminally charge him. So, But if you don't get in an impeachment, then he can do anything. I mean, the example they used was tell uh, Navy SEAL Team 6 to go assassinate, assassinate your political rival. A political rival. And so you could do that and then resign before there's an impeachment. And then and you're good. You found Immunity. like a loophole. No you found a cheat no code. There you go. There's you a cheat code it's for the murder laws. <laughs> so, but right. it, the judge wasn't buying it, right? Like, I think that's very clear to yes. everybody. But Trump is still harping away on this. So he goes on Truth Social and he says, all caps rant. This is one of the instances where every word is all caps, not just like every now and then. He says, <laughs> really a, president, one. <laughs> a president of the United States must have full immunity, without which it would be impossible for him or her to properly function. Any mistake, even if well intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Even events that cross the line must fall under total immunity. It's almost an admission there. Yeah. Now he goes on and, you know, babbles in, in the same vein as this. But th that line right there is psychotic. But because obviously he's saying I need to be able to get away with whatever the fuck I want to get away with, mm -hmm. even if it crosses the line. Yep. But also at the same time, he goes out there every day and says, now I'm going to go after the Democrats and I'm going to go after Girl, Joe Biden. Like you just undermined your own argument on that front. You can't say presidents get total immunity, but also we're going to go after Judge, uh, Joe Biden because he did a witch hunt and he needs to be taken down now. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that uh, truth from him really illustrates how insane a position it is to believe that presidents should have total and complete immunity unless 
they're impeached and convicted because I saw I think it might have been Bradley Moss that was laying out this scenario on uh, on Twitter whose legal opinions are good. His Israel opinions not so good, but we'll just put that aside. <laughs> we'll pretend like that's not happening. But anyway, um, he was saying, so what's to stop Joe Biden from assassinating you? And then, you know, if you uh, if if there is an impeachment hearing, you can understand why many senators may be a little nervous about convicting someone who was so psycho that they would have their political opponents assassinated. Or like I said, you could just resign and then you're good to go. I mean, this is a path to complete insane lawlessness, which, to your point, the judges seem to agree with that, that that would be an insane uh, interpretation. But on the other hand, you know, Trump and his team, I'm not sure they even really believe the arguments that they're making, but the whole strategy is just to tie this all up in the courts, to take as long as possible, draw on appeals as much and as far as they possibly can to try to get the Republican nomination, get to Election Day and then be able to, you know, hold his own fate in his hands as president of the United States. Yeah. I mean, functionally, if we hold up this standard, that would mean we have not just a dictator, but kind of like an emperor. Yeah. You know, almost like complete and utter authority mm -hmm. within one individual. And it's the old school Nixon. If the president does it, it's not illegal. That's what he's effectively. Yeah. And there are for. a lot of people, especially on the right, uh, people like Bill Barr, by the way, who believe in this, like, basically the executive is like an emperor and can do whatever the hell they want and have extraordinary powers. And, um, you know, they've been pushing in that direction for a long time. So, while it was heartening to see those particular uh, justices taking a very skeptical look at those claims, it's very disturbing to see him pushing this case out in the open that a president can be utterly lawless, that there are literally no limits on what they can do, and there is no accountability available for them through the justice system. It's not going to work. Uh, I'm pretty certain on that now. Um, and sort of the roots of this in modern American history actually came from Bush and Cheney with what was called the unitary executive mm -hmm. theory. And they used a lot of that to prosecute the war on terror. Yeah. Um, but for Bill Barr, yeah, he was a proponent of this sort of idea. But then funny enough, he was actually one of the people in the Trump administration who stood up to him when Trump tried to illegally get the Department of Justice to like seize voting machines and issue these letters that say, you know, we're not accepting the results of the election. Bill Barr was like, no, it's true. So we're going to go ahead and not do that. So it's interesting how some of the ideological like parents of this idea kind of turned on it when push came to shove, because if you have somebody like Trump, he takes it all the way to its logical conclusion mm -hmm. and its most extreme perspective, which is basically just being a total authoritarian dictator, yeah. emperor, overlord, god king. He's like a living, breathing, slippery slope. Yeah, <laughs> Where it's like, exactly. let me show you exactly how far afield this goes and how terrifying the end results are of this ideology. So now let me, sh no, let me share with you, uh, that was one of the things he said on Truth Social. Here's the other thing, which I actually think is equally important and interesting for, you know, a different reason. Uh, there's this border negotiation that's going on right now in mm -hmm. the Senate, and they're trying to come up with some sort of a, a bipartisan agreement as to what to do with the crisis. And so Trump chimes in now and says, I do not think we should do a border deal at all unless we get everything needed to shut down the invasion of millions and millions of people, many from parts unknown into our once great but soon to be great again country. Also, I have no doubt that our wonderful Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, will only make a deal that is perfect on the border. Remember, without strong borders and honest elections, we don't have a country. So the reason why this is, uh, is interesting is that according to all the reports, and maybe you can get into some of the specifics on yeah. this, 
and even according to neocons like Lindsey Graham, very hardcore Republican, they've said, look, the deal that we're in the process of making and finalizing at the moment is the most conservative deal on the border we've had at least through three or four presidencies. In other words, you're not going to get a better deal. Even if Trump was president, you're not going to get a better deal than this for the right. Right. And it's, you know, it's a bunch of the far right people, the MAGA aligned Republicans who are still basically throwing a tantrum being like, no, no. The real reason is they don't want to give Joe Biden even an optical victory mm -hmm. of like he got some bipartisan border deal done. Yeah. And that's why Trump's saying this, too. Let's have nothing done under Joe Biden at all. Right. So that I, we can say, well, why aren't you getting anything done? Um, but for him to come out and say this is kind of astonishing. Yeah. It's the classic, like he said it the other day, too, like, I want the economy to crash so that people, you know, so that then, then they'll vote for me, basically. I want everything right. to go to shit so that I can come in and be the solution. So um, there was a member of Congress, this guy, Troy Niels. And by the way, David Dayan has a great piece breaking down all of these dynamics that I highly recommend. He told CNN, I'm not willing to do too damn much right now to help the Democrat and to help Joe Biden's approval rating. So he just specifically with regards to the border. So he's just completely giving up the game here that, like, I don't actually really give a shit about this issue. I just like it as a crisis and as a, you know, a problem for my political opponents. And that's my whole goal is to use the human beings who are suffering in this situation, use them as pawns in my cynical political game to try to score points on my opponent. And, like, that's obviously Trump's calculation here as well. In terms of the specifics of the deal, I mean— Lindsey Graham and co who are saying you're not going to get a better deal here, even under a Republican president, even under Donald Trump are correct. It is a hard right deal. Um, it is completely restrictionist. It's all on the enforcement side. Um, so some of the executive actions that are proposed here per David Dayan's piece, ending humanitarian parole, basically reinstating the remain in Mexico policy for asylum seekers, deporting or detaining anyone caught between ports of entry, increasing expedited removal and completing the border wall. I mean, the biggest thing that. You wow. Can, yeah. So, wow. I mean, this is like if Trump proposed it and that's why you wouldn't get a better deal under Trump, because if Trump proposed this, the Democrats, Democrats would be, like, would be freaking out yeah. about it. They'd be talking about how immoral this is, how unjust to immigrants, how, what a violation of law this is um, and denial of basic rights. So that's why, you know, it takes Joe Biden and basically the Democrats just like falling in line with whatever the president says is fine on the border when it's Joe Biden. That's why they're saying you won't get a better deal than this under Trump, because under Trump, Democrats would be opposed, uniformly opposed to this very same deal. But it really does expo expose the Republicans, not that it's a surprise, that they don't care about this issue. They don't care about anything. It's just all disgusting cynical political posturing and using migrants as scapegoats and pawns in their nasty little game. I actually had written in my notes before you said that. Yeah. You said Republicans don't don't care about anything. I had written Republicans don't stand for anything. And then my next sentence is quoting you from not that long ago where you said <laughs> it's literally all about Trump. Yeah. And this is all about Trump. He's saying, no, I don't want a, a right wing border security deal at the moment. I want it to be further right. But most importantly, I don't want it not because I'm against it in principle. I just don't want Biden to get the quote unquote optical victory. So a couple points on this. Number one, can we finally put to bed the, the absurd, moronic, idiotic notion, which is spread far and wide on right wing media and in mainstream media and among a lot of various pundits who say that there are some people in D.C. who support open borders? What are we talking about? Right. Like the Democrats were like, let me give you 94% of what you want. And by the way, I also support these things. What are we talking about open borders? There's nobody who supports open borders. 
You can be the most left-wing congressperson there is. They don't support open borders. That's not a thing. So that's the first point. Second point is, um, if a Republican president was, for whatever reason, we live in bizarro world or we're back in the day when, you know, to, like Wendell Wilkie and the Republicans who ran against like FDR had to be left-wing in order to try to, to win. If you gave me a Republican who was in favor of Medicare for all, there, not in a million years would I flip on it and say, well, now I'm against it because I don't want to give them an optical victory yeah. or vi like, yeah. so to your point, they don't give a fuck about anything. Nothing. There's nothing at the core. Maybe there's like, no, here's my morality. Here's maybe my like principles. wars and tax breaks for wealthy people. Maybe those are the only principles that they're like willing to, to actually stand up for. I mean, that's what we saw with the only times they were willing to go against Trump were when he would like, you know, have diplomatic negotiations with someone they didn't like. That was like the only time there was any any courage shown in uh, Republican Party against Trump. So maybe those are the principles that they're not willing to violate. But I just want to make, you know, briefly a substantive point about immigration, which is, you know, there are a lot of various issues. First of all, there are a lot of problems in the world, many of which we have a hand in creating, by the way. And the best solution would be to try to work to actually solve those problems and make the home countries good places, livable places, safe places, places that are economically prosperous so that people who, you know, it's not an easy journey. People aren't like dying to, they're actually literally dying to, to come here, but because of the unsafety of the, of the journey and what they risk. But it's because of those home country conditions that you have this problem. So that's number one, but we all understand the problems of the world are not going to be solved overnight. And so the crux of the issue here is the fact that there is such a massive backlog of asylum claims that, you know, you can't have this process adjudicated in anything approaching a reasonable manner. So, you know, it's not Republicans have this theory of if you're just like the biggest assholes and you're as cruel as humanly possible and treat migrants in this inhumane, uh, abhorrent way that people will stay away and they won't come. There's not evidence of that. What you really need is to surge a number of uh, judges and others who can adjudicate these cases quickly so you can determine who is, you know, meritorious, meritorious of uh, asylum claims, whose claims do not have merit. And you can sort through this in a reasonable, orderly fashion. But of course, they have no interest in that. What they're interested in is the show of cruelty, a lot of which is in this bill. But, you know, when it's offered by a Democratic president, they still don't want to take. And uh, honestly, we should be grateful to them for saying no to this and saving us from the fate of what is a really draconian and ugly immigration bill. Yeah. And just to your point, um, the first part of your point, yeah, if we were to stop sanctioning the shit out of places like Venezuela mm -hmm. and Cuba, and if we were to stop uh, continuing the drug war endlessly, which only strengthens the cartels, which basically create narco states in yeah. Central and South America. Yep. If you stop doing the things that create the conditions for people to leave those countries, they wouldn't leave those countries. It's a hard thing to leave everything and everyone you've ever known and start over. People rarely want to do that. They feel they're put in a position where they feel like I have to do that or my son is going to get killed or my daughter is going to get raped or whatever it is. And so they come. And so you have to fix those underlying conditions. That's step number one. But people act like that's not even in the conversation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so then we're stuck just on the conversation about how militaristic should we be at the border? How big mm -hmm. should we build the wall? How much should we flout due process and ship people out no matter what? And to your point, uh, the practical best thing to do also is the flood the zone with the judges so they can process the claims. Yeah. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, there was this article that came out the other day, which I found fascinating uh, in the Daily Mail. And they talked about how uh, the World Economic Forum, Davos, mm -hmm. 
a little bit of debauchery going on over there. Ooh, so the title is uh, Davos's Debauched Underbelly, How the Global Elite Indulge in Cocaine, Caviar, and Champagne at Secret Bunga Bunga Parties <laughs> Behind the Scenes of the World Economic Forum. What, what is the what, what qualifies something as a Bunga Bunga so, Party versus a regular debauched party? I don't know, <laughs> but I do know the last time I heard Bunga Bunga Party used was with, what was the guy's name who was the former Prime Minister Berlusconi of Israel? No, who's no, got more, Italy. I'm sorry, Israel. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Berlusconi almost got it to two-state solution. Okay. I mean, was there, maybe. <laughs> he was the former prime minister of Italy, and he has more plastic surgery than, like, Pamela Anderson or whatever the biggest <laughs> porn, porn star in the world is. Pamela Anderson is not a porn star, but you know what I'm saying. Yes, I did A lot of plastic surgery. This more than any, like, really well. I know. <laughs> more than any, like, real housewife of Hollywood or whatever. How about that? Is that better? <laughs> um, and this guy, had, you know, allegedly had insane parties, but also was involved with underage girls. That was the other big knock on this guy. He's like a billionaire asshole. Anyway, so that's the last time I saw Bunga, Bar Bunga Party. That's what, that's where I saw it. And so I'm imagining like a similar level of debauchery okay. at these parties. Okay. okay? So look, I, I mean, the thing that I find more interesting in this conversation, not even the parties are going on, I mean, I really don't care. And I kind of expect it. The more interesting thing that I wanted to discuss was what the fuck is this thing anyway? The World Economic Forum, because when you see people, there's like people on the right and the far right mm -hmm. and like the conspiracy theorist right who have this notion that like actually it's not just stuff like we described and standard corruption. It's also they're drinking the blood of kids and they are doing all sorts of, you know, insane uh, Illuminati type uh, weird ritualistic sacrifice stuff yeah so you have this conspiracy angle and all th these are people who control the world that part is true mm -hmm. but but they want like a globalist marxist communist takeover right. right that's the right wing reaction to it and then a lot of liberals i'd say like the the sort of the mainstream liberal reaction and and elite media reaction is sort of like well, no, because you guys are attacking them, now I'm just going to act like this is a, a, you know, a Boy Scouts meeting gathering of people mm -hmm. who only want to do right by the world and are trying to find solutions to problems. Right. And I find both of those takes just completely and utterly wrong. I think the reality of the situation is the world, the conspiracy is in plain sight. These are all global elites. These are billionaires, CEOs, business people, uh, head of uh, central banks and people with all sorts of power and celebrity and prestige. And they all get together. But effectively, what they're trying to do is a status quo protection racket because they're all powerful and they want to remain powerful. But they virtue signal like, well, here are the ways that we're going to save the world. So it's like very navel gazy yeah. and self-masturbatory. Yes. But effectively, it's just a status quo protection racket because yes. they're the rich. They're the powerful. They don't want to change so too much. So in other words, instead of like a Marxist communist cabal, what we're talking about here is a hyper capitalist cabal yes. or an oligarch cabal. Yes, that's exactly right. And even to call it capitalist isn't quite right. They really have no ideology outside of money and power. So if, you know, it benefits them to have a like authoritarian regime that is, you know, anti-capitalist, but that is getting them as an oligarch tremendously wealthy, then they're happy with that status quo as well. I was reading this Wall Street Journal article 
that was like networking tips from the Davos elite oh. that heavily oh. quoted Anthony Scaramucci. Mm, I, that's yeah, that was he was included in this article I read too. I, I noticed that. Like, yeah. how is this man getting all like? I guess he's the one person who will talk to literally anyone about his Davos experience. And he's so happy to be like associated with the World Economic Forum because you've got the people who are the elite of the elites, and then you have the people who are like the hangers on. Who are, which is like a Scaramucci, who are like desperately trying to get in the room. He talks about how he crashes all the parties and what his strategy is and how what he a like loser. all the, it, it's so grotesque and how, you know, they're constantly looking around to see how the like most powerful, wealthy person is in the room. But yeah, I mean, as you said, the conspiracy is on the open. I always find it so silly when the right wing pretends like the conspiracy is they want Marxism and green energy. That is literally <laughs> the last thing they would ever want is Marxism. <laughs> right. Literally the last right. thing they would ever or want. Green, I mean, a lot of these are like oil tycoons. So you think they're like, oh, we got to make everybody get off meat and only do green energy. Like this is not this is not Woodstock or something. This is not their agenda. So it is preposterous. It's also the thing that grosses me out about it, too, is I don't know how, even though every year it's met by universal disgust at this point from the left and the right, how still it's given so much credence and credibility among political and economic elites. I mean, Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken both were there giving speeches and oh, in the midst being of on panels. Orchestrating a genocide, Blinken said, I'm going to go talk to these assholes. Right. Yes, yeah. that's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got that. We've got like, you know, tension in Taiwan, just like new leader. And that's, you know, a tense situation. We've all obviously got Ukraine. We've got the Red Sea and our stupid fucking escalate to de-escalate strategy there. We've got the genocide we're funding in Israel. I'm sure many other things besides. And they still find it worth their time to go to the World Economic Forum and then, by the way, to lie to everyone and pretend like they care about a two-state solution and that that's going to be the end state of the Israeli genocide on um, the Palestinian people. It's just le the levels of grotesque. Honestly, I wish these people would just spend their time doing the bunga bunga parties as long as there's no underage or non-consent involved there. But the cocaine, the champagne, the caviar, fine. Go do that and leave the rest of us the fuck alone. So Ken Klippenstein was there a few years back. Yeah. And um, he made some interesting points. That's amazing. He saw some interesting things when he was there that he yeah. shared with everybody so one of the things he points out is that they'll have these like panel discussions and it'll be framed around we are we need to start empowering workers to make them feel like they have, you know, independence and control right. and mm -hmm. they can bring about their best selves. So they'll frame it like that, but then you get into the specifics. What the panel is really about is how do we raise the retirement age and how do we get these people back to the office? Right. So it's like they, they frame it in these virtue signally, like, you know, we're coming to save the day. We're mm -hmm. all about you. But then the reality is we got to raise that retirement age because people are living longer and we need to get their asses back to the office. Another one they, that he talked about was quiet quitting. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, trying to come up with strategies to end quiet quitting because, mm -hmm. oh, my God, this is like a scourge. And we need to make sure that these are just busy little worker bees. By the way, again, hilarious that they're ever <laughs> these are communists. These literally nobody could be further from <laughs> communist. And then a couple couple more points. Um he talked about how in some of the uh, economic hearings and like um, when, the, when they were talking about interest rates and things of that nature, mm -hmm. everybody in the room was deferential to Larry Summers, mm -hmm. who is, mm -hmm. you know, the chief neoliberal goon mm -hmm. who's OK with tremendous amounts of pain among working people. If it means squeezing out a couple more pennies for yeah. corporate profits. And this year, Klaus Schwab, who's like, the, you know, the head boogeyman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're going to love this. So he came out. And he was talking in a speech. He was praising 
Malay. I saw that. Of Argentina. I saw that. So, by the way, I've seen a lot of these right-wing conspiracy guys who really hate the World Economic Forum and hate Davos and hate Klaus Schwab and are all in on the conspiracy theories. I saw them sucking off Malay for being an anarcho-capitalist, right? And then here's Klaus Schwab agreeing with you completely, even though you virtue signal against Klaus Schwab. Right. So who really has the ideology that challenges power? It ain't you. It ain't the anarcho-capitalists. It ain't right-wing conspiracy theories that happen to, you know, feed the, the status quo and the powers that be as you think you're opposing it. You're not opposing it. You're not opposing it if you're not going after the billionaires and taxing the shit out of them. You're not. You're not opposing it if you're not breaking up big businesses. You're not. You're not opposing power if you're not supporting unions. You're not. I'm sorry, but all these things that, like, they think they're so edgy and they think they're challenging power, you're not, which is why Klaus Schwab agrees with you when it comes to Malay. So there's my rant and, on that. And by the way, just so everybody is clear, it's not like Malay went there to, like, stick it to them and tell them the truth and to their face or whatever. No, he went to call them heroes and said that he they have his unconditional support. And their support of him, too, by the way, comes as Argentina's inflation, thanks to his policies already, is surging past 200%. So that's, that's what we're talking about here. Anarcho-capitalism is market fundamentalism. And Argentina is going to have some rough times ahead because of it. All right, let's get to yeah, our guest. Indeed. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Owen Jones, a fantastic independent journalist who has been doing really incredible and important work with regard to Israel's all-out assault on Gaza. Let's get to it. Everybody, welcome Owen Jones, journalist and author. He's here to talk to us about everything Israel-Palestine, and we have a lot to say. So thank you for joining us, Owen. We appreciate it. Great to see you, Owen. Hey, guys. Good to be back on again. You're looking very well, if you don't mind me saying <laughs> Thank you. You are as well. That. Always take that. All right. So let's start with this. I, we were just chatting a little bit off air about this, but your uh, Piers Morgan debate went pretty viral, I would say. Got a lot of eyeballs on it. I think I actually covered it for the Kyle Klinsky show. I'd, I'd have to go back and check. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, let's just I just want to rehash like the main theme of that debate, because I find this I run into the same points time and time again when having these discussions. Piers point always seems to be. Uh, whatever you say, no matter what facts or numbers or realities on the ground you bring up, he immediately goes back to, yeah, but Hamas is worse. But yeah. Hamas. And so how do you uh, deal with that objection? Like, what do you say to that? I think there's a few things. I mean, what you've got to do with Piers is kind of turn the tables and use his own logic. You know, so, for example, the reason I brought up Ukraine with him is he kept describing Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a, as a genocide. So the question then is, if that's a genocide, then why would this not be a genocide? And his kind of response then was, well, actually, that can't, the, the difference is, is because um, Russia unjustly, without provocation, attacked um, Ukraine. Now, obviously, that erases 7th of October. Uh, sorry, that starts the clock on 7th of October and erases decades of ethnic cleansing, of apartheid, occupation, illegal settlements, mass slaughter of Palestinians, 96% of all deaths before... Uh, in the 18, sorry, 16 years before 7th of October were Palestinians. I mean, we could go on. Um, but, but also, I mean, since that interview, the key point made, of course, by South Africa's legal team in their genocide case against Israel in the International Court of Justice is there is never any justification for genocide. It doesn't matter if you're attacked first, full stop. You know, you could go back to Rwanda. Look, Rwanda's a very different situation than the Israeli onslaught on Gaza. But if we were going to be all technical about it, then the Rwandan Patriotic Front 
um, of the Tutsis invaded from Uganda in 1990, committed a huge range of atrocities, including killing huge numbers of civilians. Well, that doesn't justify the genocide, does it, against the Tutsis by Hutu extremists in 1994. Similarly, terrible atrocities committed against Bosnian Serb civilians in Bosnia. Around 7,000 Bosnian Serbs were killed in that war, raped, tortured, beheaded. You could go through the works, actually. The first big massacre of the Bosnian wars against Bosnian Serbs. No one says that justifies, for example, what happens in Srebrenica, do they? So his whole logic there is wrong. What I did want to get into him, actually, was about terrorism, because he basically tried to do in Jeremy Corbyn, the former Labour leader, on that question of Hamas being terrorist. And the point there is, if you argue that terrorism is violence against civilians to achieve a political end, then Israel itself is guilty of state terrorism on, on a grand scale. Uh, there's a doctrine uh, which was pioneered in 2006 in Lebanon, which involves uh, using huge force against civilian populations in order to turn the population, in that case against Hezbollah, but that's been used as a brilliant Israeli-Palestinian magazine, nine, plus 972, found um, in Gaza. That's terrorism. So I think the issue is, is just you, you, you have to look at the inconsistencies of that argument. If they're going to argue Russia's invasion of Ukraine is genocide, huge, terrible war crimes have been committed, I would say, against the people of Ukraine. Far, far worse war crimes have been committed against Gaza, far more genocidal incitement and intent in this case. So it's just the hypocrisy and inconsistencies, I think. He's a classic example, which I, I think is the right strategy. Yeah, that has been a challenging one for uh, American politicians when I've interviewed them yeah. as well, you know, who had no problem identifying, uh, understanding what a war crime is, right. identifying mm -hmm. war crimes, talking about genocide when it was Russia, but suddenly when it's Israel, it's, well, what even is a war crime? I'm not a lawyer. How can I say? We don't really know. But I think that they're doing everything they can to protect civilians. Suddenly they get very squeamish about even knowing what a war crime actually is. The yeah, other thing that... Yeah, well, I was just going to say, the other thing that Pierce loves to do is to say, okay, so you've got a problem with Israel's response, but what else could they have done? Like, yeah, what? He's, he's asked that question 50 times. I mean, he asked everybody who's going, like, what would you do? What would be the right response to the atrocities committed on October 7th? And, and what I suppose there, there's two kind of responses there, because on the, on the one hand, it would be kind of, well, yes, you're absolutely right. If Israel was a state which has for decades, dehumanized and oppressed Palestinians involving mass slaughter. Huge numbers of Palestinians obviously have been killed since 1948, 15,000 in the Nakba itself, occupation, colonization, all the rest of it. If you were that state and you had thoroughly dehumanized the Palestinian people, committed all those atrocities, and then that attack happened, then you would respond in this way. And therefore, anything we say is clearly based on not what a state like Israel would have done in those circumstances, because the nature of Israel and the nature of how Israel has behaved means, of course, it was going to respond in that way, which is why you need international pressure. It's the fact Israel has impunity and can behave as it wishes, which is the root of the problem. So from our position, it would be, well, the reason there's no justifications for the atrocities committed against civilians on 7th of October, there, there were terrible atrocities committed. The root of the violence in this situation is Israel's decades-long occupation and apartheid. And unless you remove that, then obviously they, the violence will continue. But the other point is, and it goes back to the South African case, is there was never any justification for genocide. Even if you don't think this is genocide, um, huge war crimes, crimes against humanity, have objectively happened. There's objective genocidal intent being expressed by Israeli ministers, Israeli politicians, um, the Israeli uh, media, Israeli army officers, Israeli soldiers. 
it's absurd to say to people, what other response could they have other than committing war crimes and crimes against humanity? I mean, right. the idea we're on the defence there, because there is never, again, it's the same with genocide, but it's again, the same with any crime against humanity, any war crime, there is never any justification. As I've said, I could go back to Bosnia and go, you know, Bosnian Serb uh, leaders could point to a huge number of atrocities committed against Bosnian Serb civilians. I read through some of those atrocities. They're absolutely heinous. They're horrific. Imagine saying, well, what, what, um, what, other, uh, what else could they have done? Um, given the atrocities committed against them. That's why all those men of military age in Srebrenica had to be killed, because um, because because these are these are threats to us and they've raped and murdered our people. What other, what else could the Bosnian Serb army have done? Well, that's an absurd rationale, which would never be applied. And it's the same again in Rwanda. You can't look back at the 1990 invasion, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the atrocities admit, objectively committed by Paul Kagame, who's now the dicta dictator of Rwanda, has been since the genocide, and then say that genocide was obviously a legitimate response. So it's completely outrageous to suggest to us, you know, there was never, ever, ever any justification for what are far worse war crimes than those committed, which were committed by Hamas. I don't, I genuinely don't know how to get through to people who have this sort of default assumption that there's, there's just a difference between Hamas's intent and Israel's intent. There seems to be this almost like default factory setting belief in many people in the way it really is <laughs> where they think like, no, you don't get it. Hamas, they want to kill civilians. They're killing them on purpose. It says so in their charter, et cetera, et cetera, like nefarious comic book villain ca uh, categorization of Hamas. But then when you talk about Israel, they might admit like, oh yeah, you know, they're sloppy. Maybe there's not enough attention to detail, but obviously what they're trying to do is just defensive and they're just trying to do a hunt for Hamas. And it's even when you bring up like, hey, there's 12,000 kids that are dead. There's 28,000 innocent civilians that are dead. North Gaza is totally wiped off the map. How many hospitals have they bombed? How many schools have they bombed? How many UN buildings have they bombed? Hey, here's uh, Smotrich or Ben Gavir, and here's them saying, rah, rah, genocide and ethnic cleansing. And they go, no, I just don't, I don't, I don't see bad intent. So how do you get through to somebody like that? Because I'm struggling with this myself. I'm sure you're struggling right. with it too. Do you have any strategies to sort of make it click for people that no, actually, the IDF is effectively acting as a terrorist army right now and they have the intent to get rid of Palestinians and to resettle Gaza. How do you get that through to people? But by the way, which we should sign apologetically, this is state terrorism. And the, the right. use of the word terrorism, of course, is being used politicized to mean there is legitimate violence by the West and there is illegitimate violence. And our violence is moral and legitimate. Their violence is immoral and illegitimate. And the, the point I was saying in response to that, I think there's, there's a few basic points. Firstly, I mean, again, I would always accept the terrible atrocities committed that were committed against the Israeli civilians on 7th of October, and I would never deny that. The, the point is, if you look at that attack, and it's called an indiscriminate attack, then where does that leave Israel's onslaught on Gaza? I'm not just talking about the absolute numbers. Uh, 36... Israeli children were killed on 7th of October. Each of those in, in themselves a terrible crime, the killing of children. Uh, that means 3.5% of all those killed on 7th of October are children. 39.5% of all those killed in Gaza are kids. So if that's an indiscriminate attack, then where on earth does that leave Israel's onslaught against Gaza? But I think the crucial point, and this was uncovered by this brilliant magazine, as I've mentioned, Israeli-Palestinian magazine, Plus 972, um, and local call. And, and what they did is they it's called Inside Israel's Mass Assassination Factory. And it's based on uh, interviews with intelligence officers um, who work for 
the Israeli military machine. Uh, thoroughly documented, evidenced, researched. And the point they make is, um, refers back to, as I said, what's called the Dahir Doctrine, D-A-H-I-Y-A. -A. That was actually coined by the uh, former IDF chief of staff, uh, Gadi Atzinkot, who's one of his sons was actually killed in the, in the current war. And that was you use military means against a civilian population in order to get them to turn against either Hezbollah or Hamas. That is explicitly using violence against the civilian population to achieve a political end. That's terrorism. That's the de 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 dictionary definition. And the point made, as they said in this article, which goes through it, is they deliberately go for what are seen as high-value civilian targets, such as uh, tower blocks, on the basis that, for example, if you could say there's on half a floor, there's an Islamic Jihad office of no military value, you can use that to justify taking off the tower block by blowing up that tower block, which then becomes this huge, um, ter terrifying spectacle on the skyline. You therefore terrify other civilians into taking actions against Hamas. That's what they investigated. They also made the point that, for example, uh, the acceptable collateral damage uh, previously was dozens per military target. That's now hundreds per military target. The nature of a military target is also can mean someone who's not even necessarily involved. You know, the, the other point which Amnesty International investigated was defined as a Hamas target blurs often civilians and combatants. You can make an argument that this or that institution is technically, we can say it's linked to Hamas. Anyone who works there is linked to Hamas. They all become legitimate targets, even though they're not combatants. So I think that that, that doctrine just exposes Israel for using the same approach as Hamas. Um, and the other point is, you know, if the argument was, um, you know, the, the, the idea of rhetoric that any Israeli civilian is a settler and therefore they become a legitimate target, and that was the basis for atrocities committed, well, you can see the same, which is used by senior Israeli politicians. There are no innocents in Gaza. There are no uninvolved people in Gaza. The Israeli president is seen as a moderate. Isaac Herzog, he's seen as nowhere near as white wing as Benjamin Netanyahu, where he said, I don't believe this idea of, uh, no, no, you know, this wasn't collective, the, the nation as a whole, there are no uninvolved people. Um, th that is the idea that every civilian is a legitimate target. So, uh, you know, there's, the distinction is Israel has the support and arms of the West, and Israel can inflict far, far, far worse atrocities. And the point about intent and capacity is a really important one, which is why terrorism and war crimes are committed on a far, far greater scale than that committed by Hamas, of course. Yeah. And I think at the core of this, I mean, there's obviously like, a, you know, very clear Western bias and this like Cold War hangover bias and all of that. And there's also just a lot of straight up racism, you know, this uh, dehu easy dehumanizing of Arabs and of Palestinians, um, this Islamophobia. And so, you know, everything is interpreted from for Israel in the best possible light. You know, you've got even after the Biden administration came out and like condemned Ben Gavir and Smotrich and uh, that's not what we think the official Israeli government policy is like they keep coming out and saying, no, no, that is our official policy. Yeah, yep. And yet they never get taken at their word, which they have made incredibly clear what they want to do. They've written analyses and studies about how they want to do ethnic cleansing and they've floated legislation here in the U.S. and they're constantly on television like, no, this is what we are doing and what we want to do. But we're supposed to pretend like we don't hear that and don't take them at their word. And yet we're supposed to, you know, take everything Hamas says, their charter from 1987 or whatever, like that's gospel or the one interview that they do as gospel. They're always their actions are always to be interpreted in the most negative possible light. And the Israelis, when it's inconvenient, you're just supposed to throw out altogether what they say and pretend like you didn't hear it. Well, exactly. Imagine, for example, this was 
I don't know, a, a, a Muslim majority nation led by an Islamist leader who quote who was at war with a Christian a fast a Christian enclave, which right. they were destroying that Christian enclave, wiped out seventy percent of its buildings, uh, killed one in sixty nine uh, of those civilians in one hundred days through violent deaths, which is at the moment. Um, if you include those buried under rubble, who are, I'm afraid to say, dead, uh, over 30,000 Gazans have suffered violent deaths. That's one in every 69. So they're, they're not letting humanitarian aid, they're destroying the healthcare system, attacking hospitals. And then the leader of that nation quotes a Quranic verse, which favorably says that you should kill all men, women, um, and children and livestock um, um, in revenge, which is what Benjamin Netanyahu did when he quoted Amalek from the scriptures. Yeah. Imagine how that would be portrayed. It would just be portrayed straightforwardly as a genocidal declaration um, justified by uh, a religious text. And yeah. the point about the dehumanization of the Palestinians, you know what? It's not even subtle. It is actually, you know, I'm not surprised by it, but I am shocked to my core. The, the studies now, there's been studies by The Intercept into um, a range of uh, US newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, there's been a separate study into the BBC, which tries to portray itself as impartial, public broadcaster, and all the rest of it. And what they've shown is there is far, 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 far less coverage per Palestinian death, violent death, compared to Israeli violent deaths. That far less emotive language is used. So that words like mother, grandmother, father, grandmother, son, daughter, far, far, far more likely to be applied to an Israeli death than to a Palestinian death. And also words like die rather than kill, as though Palestinians just dropping dead with no cause of death, um, or massacre, slaughter, never used in the case of Palestinians in the analysis, but repeatedly used in the case of Israelis. So it's what you've seen there is, is just overt racism that isn't a pretense that Palestinian life has anything near the worth of an Israeli or Westerner. And that isn't just anecdotal. That's what the statistical evidence shows. It can't be argued with. Um, it is overt, unapologetic, racism. And the world can see this. I don't think people have quite understood this. The world can see, and they're learning a lesson, most of the world didn't accept the moral claims of the West anyway. They got right. colonized and have lots of genocides committed against them by the West in many cases throughout their history. They didn't accept it in the first place. But this is so unsubtle, the idea that there is no value attached to Palestinian life whatsoever. And I think that's going to have profound impacts, not just globally, but within Western countries, because I think a lot of people, younger people, people from minority backgrounds are looking at that and they're learning a very, very gruesome lesson. Oh, and you did a great video breaking down that BBC study in particular. I actually used a piece of it in a, um, a monologue I did, putting together some of those different studies that came out. And the thing that I started with was there was this broadcaster on Sky News who described a three-year-old Palestinian who was killed by the IDF as a young lady. And this was at the same time that the Daily Mail was running this piece about four female IDF soldiers, adult women, who are being held hostage, which they shouldn't be, but being held hostage by Hamas. And they're described as girls. And oh. nowhere in that article, by the way, do they even mention that they're soldiers. Oh, my God. There's interviews, emotional interviews with, with their families, who I'm sure are horrified and terrified and emotional and all of that. But you get to see them in all of their humanity, who they are, what their hopes were, how they, you know, ended up in this situation. And for this three-year-old toddler... Who is dead? You'll never know any of those things. So just as a microcosm. Do you remember as well how they described uh, how she was shot dead? Do you remember what they said in that broadcast? I think it was the bullet found its way. That's right. Oh yeah. my god! The bullet found its way. 
a bullet found its way into the van. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think what, you know, what's obvious is this is so imprinted in... Because this is, you know, it's easy to just look at, you know, heinous examples by individual reporters and journalists. It's a systemic problem, um, which is, is thoroughly ingrained in the Western media um, to treat, for example, those who are seen as not us. Palestinians are just not seen as us. And, you know, Israeli civilians correctly are seen as us. So there's a profound emotional response you get from the media because they saw the attack on Israeli civilians as an attack on us, and they see Palestinians as an alien species. And, and also part of a, you know, they're all somehow maybe collectively tainted by, uh, by Hamas. Yeah, it and, did and remind that, that... me... It did remind me, too, of the beginning, especially of the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, where there were far too many broadcasters who came out and basically admitted that they cared extra about it because these were blonde-haired, blue-eyed Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, wow, y'all are just really saying the quiet part out loud right now. And, you know, when you look at these analyses, you can see how much that infects every aspect of the coverage. A hundred percent. I mean, you're right. There was, I remember that at the time. There was very... Various bits of coverage saying, you know, the, the shock of seeing white Europeans with blonde hair as refugees all of a sudden, um, which was, you know, people seeing it as the profound shock as they're us, and they're, that's why we should that's why we should care, uh, rather than those who don't seem to be like us or look like us. But there's a long history, of course, because in the Middle East, uh, the Arabs and Muslims um, have been on the receiving end of brutal uh, colonization and uh, Western-backed wars. And what's always happened, I mean, we saw that with colonization, when European states carved up Africa, you have to rationalize and justify the oppression they suffer. Um, because as soon as people see them as equal human beings, then you start to, unless you're a sociopath, you start to therefore regard that kind of oppression as, as unjustifiable and wrong. But if you can find ways of basically portraying them as inferior, then that forms those forms of oppression become uh, tolerable, even things you support. And that's obviously the case with the Palestinian people, uh, people who've been dispossessed, um, who've suffered terrible oppression with the active support um, of Western states, Western arms. Um, and I think what's interesting, though, is if you look at, if we look at the polling, that's, that approach is something that younger people in particular are turning away from. Younger people in the United States and Britain are the most pro-Palestinian uh, generations ever. So I think that is being shock. But the old media, you can see, has very much tried to keep that approach in place. Um, and that kind of, you know, even the way it's still portrayed, how much, well, over 100 days into this, it's still portrayed by even, well, I say even, but liberal newspapers as basically this is an assault against Hamas with a side debate about but, whether it's proportionate or not. I mean, literally, if this was a state hostile, uh, regardless about what we think about the case about genocide, if this state was hostile to the US and Britain, and its leaders were speaking in the way that they're speaking every single day, just human animals, they're all Nazis, no innocence, no one involved, we're going to drive all them out of their homes. And they had unleashed the amount of firepower they have, for which there was no precedent in any modern military campaign at all. There would be no debate about whether it's genocide or not. That's so regardless right. no. about what's concluded, they, the same people who are saying this isn't genocide, if this was a state, favorable, uh, sorry, hostile to Brit uh, Britain and the United States, one, they wouldn't even hesitate. They wouldn't call yeah. this no. genocide. They There'd called no Ukraine yeah. genocide. We don't even need to, to debate it.
So, so let me ask you this. I'm going to make a weird analogy here, but bear with me. It'll make sense at the end. When I was a kid, I, I like to play golf. Me and my buddies play golf, and I would play with my dad. And uh, one time I was golfing with my dad, and this topic came up of this this infomercial that's played for a certain club at like 4 a.m. on the golf channel. The name of the club was The Hammer, and they had this like goofy guy with a mullet taking long drive swings at it, and he would say, boom, every time he hit the ball. And me and my buddies would look at that and be like, this is the most like scam gimmicky product of all time. It's obviously not like a good driver, but talking to my dad, he was under the impression like this thing is, I need to get one. This thing is great. Have you seen the infomercials? It's really convincing. So this sort of goofy product was able to dupe my dad because of the infomercial. And it's something that me and my friend saw very clearly. This is not what it's promised to be. And it's probably actually bad. It's a bad club. And so how is it the case that that sort of mindset, like it really does seem like you pointed out, young people can see through the subtle propaganda on this, like the passive language versus the active language, mm -hmm. the emotive uh, words versus the non-emotive words. Young people can see through that. But in my experience, and I think the polling bears this out, older people just hook, line, and sink. Uh, just they will fall for it. They think like inherently there, there's a reason why they use emotive language here and non-emotive language here, right? Like. I, I don't know how to get through those old people, and I don't know why they seem to fall for it when I find the propaganda so sloppy and blatant and obvious. Yeah, I mean, part of it is, I mean, just if we look at who kind of in, engages with what form of media, I mean, if you look at people who watch cable news in the United States, they're far older. I think, well, the, you know, the, the average age is much, much older. People who are able to, who consume their news from social media are much, much younger. And, you know, so it's actually interesting on that because, you know, there's this constant moral panic about young people being radicalised by TikTok. Well, mm. you know, if, if I'm going to come up with some of the best material in that sense, and I don't mean best in a, in a positive way, of radicalising young people, it's Israeli soldiers posting on TikTok, just posting and, 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 and literally serving up obvious, unashamed war crimes as fodder comic fodder for public amusement. I mean, it's not even subtle. So I think, you know, you don't see the IDF soldiers, you know, blowing up civilian properties whilst laughing hysterically, going through people's underwear, stealing their stuff, uh, and singing about genocide on those forms of news. But you do see that on TikTok. You can't... No one can claim that's fault disinformation. It's just a army which rightly considers it has impunity and which has, and this is the point South Africa's case made, the link between genocidal rhetoric at the top linked to the behaviour of people, the soldiers on the ground. Um, so I just think part of it is that, but also I think it's partly younger people have been more educated on issues like racism. They're more likely to know people, of course, from more diverse uh, backgrounds. Um, and I think all of that has had a profound impact. But you're right, with older people, it's just mm -hmm. harder, to, harder to reach. In the US and Britain, they tend to be far more conservative. Um, younger people... Uh, Less so, and that's not something that used to be the case. The most pro-Reagan demographic in the 80s were young people, and mm -hmm. Margaret Thatcher won a landslide amongst young people in the early 80s. There's been a very profound shift, and I do think, you know, I do, I'd like to think the, the new media forms we've been trying to develop have played something of a role in that as well. Um, to go back to our friend Piers Morgan, his response to those IDF TikToks wasn't like, stop doing these war crimes. It was... Why do you keep posting this stuff? Oh, it's my like, like the posting was the problem, us. not the acts themselves. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, do you feel like the um, political dynamic in uh, among British people 
is similar to that of the U.S., you know, where are the similarities, where are the differences? Is there a huge generational and age divide? Um, what are the numbers in terms of being pro-ceasefire or anti-ceasefire? Give us a little bit of a sense of that. Well, interesting, actually, because I know in the U.S. there was a large number of people who supported ceasefire, according to the polling, relatively early on. But in Britain, it was actually yeah. overwhelming from the start. Um, and it's quite striking that not only did the government, of course, actively support Israel's onslaught, but Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, uh, the Labour Party, um, early on, he went on national radio and declared Israel had the right to cut off water and energy oh. to civilian population, which is Sick. just overtly supporting war crimes. By the way, that kind of language and people, there's a legal case going on at the moment, could actually incriminate politicians because under the Genocide Convention of 1948, it makes it clear that as well as the act or act of genocide, complicity and incitement um, are also criminal acts. Interestingly enough, by the way, in, I'm going off topic, but I'll go back to it. But in Israel, they, they put that in law in 1950, where according to Israel's own law um, in 1950, which put the Genocide Convention into practice, in, uh, genocide carries the death penalty, but incitement and complicity um, are treated as the same crime as genocide, and they also carry the death penalty. And I've checked mm. with a legal scholar, that remains the case. But in the case of Britain, you've got a political elite, which basically just rallied around, but the vast majority of public opinion actually opposes it. It's particularly strong amongst younger people, and polling amongst younger people shows a very, very large number actively oppose it. We've had huge demonstrations, um, over a million people, for example, one demonstration, make sure, you know, bear in mind, we've got a population of about 67, 68 million people. So very big demonstrations week after week. Um, I think it's had a big impact. And I think the danger for Keir Starmer, who will become prime minister just because the Conservatives have destroyed themselves, is he'll win by default because everyone hates the Conservatives. Um, but he's already becoming quite toxic among many voters in the way Tony Blair did over Iraq, but when he was already in power. Uh, so I think the danger, the problem at the moment is there's a lot of uh, a huge opposition to what Israel's doing, but it doesn't have any political leadership. So it just exists in society without any direction. But I think that could change. I think it's been a very shocking educational moment. Um, but it's not the same there because the Democrats are in power and therefore you get a lot of people who are actively angry at the Democrats for facilitating a genocide or as they, war crimes as they see it. So there's a different dynamic. Yeah, although in some ways it's the same because similarly there's no political outlet for people for the you know majority of people who do want a ceasefire and certainly for young people who you know overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden only to watch him turn around and be the number one genocide supporter in the world. You're right. I mean, I, I suppose that's that's where the parallel begins. Uh, sorry, the parallel definitely is striking there. It's just the thing with Keir Starmer, he's a slippery so and so is even though he went on national radio, as I said, and supported war crimes, overt war crimes, just a violation of the Geneva Convention, Article 33, and collective punishment for a start, um, is that he's managed to kind of... He's not... He, people say, well, he's not really in charge, so therefore I can't blame him for what the government is doing. So the, the mm -hmm. opposition ends up focused at the Conservatives, even though Keir Starmer has cheered it on. Um, and also they do these kind of occasional kind of hand-rigging, which I know the US administration does as well, which I find offensive, where they, on the one hand, just give them a blank check to behave as they wish, and then do some then do some hand-wringing, which they leak to a favoured newspaper or, or outlet to show, well, actually, we're very squeamish about this. It is very sad, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, you're right. I think, you know, there is a dynamic at play, which is the so-called centre-left parties are both complicit in what's happened, as well as the right, and there is nowhere for that opposition to go politically. So you shared some evidence recently about basically suppression of your material on Facebook. 
Um, and some of the stuff was was pretty convincing and pretty astonishing, if I'm being honest. So walk everybody through what happened. Yeah, so, I mean, since this began, I've published my video. Well, I've always done, but I've published my videos on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and as a podcast. Um, and since this particular horror began, my, my views have gone up by a huge amount, uh, a lot more interest, obviously. And I think there's been a huge number of people who've gone to alternative media outlets because the fact that a lot of mainstream media outlets, of course, have basically cheered on what Israel have done and certainly not presented the evidence of what's actually happening on the ground. So people are looking for other outlets. Um, at the end of November on Facebook, it's like someone just flicked a switch. Everything just went down by 96, exactly 96%. Uh, so if you look at the graph, I had a, you know, millions of views, you know, tens of millions of views, whatever. Um, and then it's like someone just, it's like someone's heart stops. So it doesn't matter what I post, it's, there's always like a, suddenly a ceiling um, where, where, you know, it doesn't, even though on YouTube there's kind of exponential increase, even on Elon Musk's X, you know, a lot of those videos I do can get huge numbers of views. Uh, but all of a sudden on Facebook, they stopped. But then people got in touch with me and said that um, independently, a load of people were, if e most of them say they don't get, I asked on Facebook, people said they just don't get notifications at all anymore. Um, but some people who do get notifications, if they click on my notification about a new video, they get sent to a completely random, irrelevant video about wildlife, for example. So they just get redirected to random websites when they click on a notification. So... I mean, it's just so blatant and obvious because why would the why would I suddenly have an immediate ninety six percent collapse at the end of November across the board on Facebook traffic likes everything immediately, whilst traffic elsewhere goes up? And why are people clicking my stuff and being sent to irrelevant websites? Have you seen evidence that there's been a more uh, systematic suppression of uh, pro Palestinian or content that's critical of Israel, especially during this moment? Oh, sorry, I should have said. The reason why I'm not a conspiracy theorist with a tinfoil hat on is uh, Human Rights Watch did a detailed report about the suppression of pro-Palestinian uh, content on Meta, so Instagram and Facebook. So they did this report, I don't know, it's like 70 pages, came out at the end of December. So when I did a video about it, I, I, start, I actually went through the report and then spoke about my own experience. But what they found was um, a huge amount of suppression going on um, in terms of shadow banning, which is what I was talking about, where you get a sudden suppression of your content with no explanation given. Uh, so I don't have any community violations. There's no, there's nothing, there's no you know, nothing is struck against my account. Misinformation, I always make sure I get my facts right, that, nothing like that. Um, so shadow banning, people's posts being taken down, accounts being shut down with uh, no right of appeal or, or, or very kind of opaque reasons given. So Human Rights Watch, yes, they went into great detail. So it's an established fact what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Meta are suppressing pro-Palestinian content and a very prestigious human rights organization have, have proven that. Um, Owen, there has been here in the U.S., and I suspect where you are as well, massive weaponization of charges of anti-Semitism to try to shut down debate. I mean, basically what happened is once the war crimes of Israel became overwhelming and undeniable, there was this uh, fake controversy that was uh, ginned up here in the U.S. about supposed anti-Semitism on college campuses. You know, this culminated in this hearing with university presidents. Some of those presidents have now been forced out because they wouldn't uniformly say, yes, we're going to completely censor free speech. Um, instances were invented of students saying things that they weren't even said, didn't even say. Students were blacklisted. Billionaires were going after them, trying to convince employers that they should never, ever hire these people. You know, what do you make of this development of basically flinging around the charge of anti 
anti-Semitism to anyone who would have a critique of Zionism, a critique of the Israeli government or critique right now of their assault on uh, Palestinians? Well, firstly, by the way, I just can't get my head around about how irresponsible it is. I mean, just forget for just for a second the very important point you're making about how pro-Palestinian voices, Palestinian voices for that matter, and I would also note lots of Jewish voices are being shut down because of this. It's so unbelievably irresponsible because actual anti-Semitism is real. There's no question. It's obviously ingrained in European culture with 2,000 years of persecution of the Jewish people culminating within living memory at the attempt to exterminate the entire Jewish population, which succeeded in killing two thirds of the European Jewish population. Anti-Semitism is real and we need a consensus on that fact. We need people to be able to fight actual anti-Semitism. If the word anti-Semitism, people suddenly lose their trust in what it actually means, that is so unbelievably dangerous. It's just unbelievably irresponsible behavior. And I think that is an important point in its own right. But the, the, the other point is, you know, as I've said, we've got, you know, there's so many examples now of, um, you know, I mean, look, Jewish voices, as I mentioned, so you've got a, I forget, I forget their name, uh, Russian, uh, Russian, a Jewish Russian, now American citizen, Misha, something. Masha Gessen. Masha Gessen, yeah, there we go. You know, in, because Germany, so I've interviewed a couple of times, actually, a German-Israeli author, uh, Toma uh, uh, Drayton Fuss, I think his name, but he just went into great detail about what's happening in Germany. Now, Germany, the German state is responsible for the Holocaust. Just be very clear about that. And unfortunately, you know, denazification did have its limits and some of those responsible uh, within the Nazi state continued. So there is some continuity. I'm just not going to make that point. I'd also make a point, I don't mean this in a kind of collective guilt way. I don't believe in collective guilt and collective punishment in that sense. But a huge, huge number of the German population were aware of the Holocaust. And that's just now the, 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 the historical scholarship makes that point. So I understand in that sense, there is a guilt, a sense of guilt for the crime committed, what the German state is doing is forcing other people to pay for what they what for what the German state uh, historically did, the the grave historic crime of the of the show, the Holocaust, um, and you know that includes in the case of Germany, Jewish German activists being uh, stigmatized and attacked um, on the basis that the German state has to defend what the Jewish population from them is absolutely unbelievably outrageous. And we're also seeing it again against Palestinian voices. And you get a culture then of, you know, Palestinians and um, citizens, whether they be German or British Palestinian people, who are watching their people being slaughtered en masse, and they fear speaking out on the basis that they would therefore be called a racist. I mean, it is the world turned upside down. And also, as well as... because anti and I do think there is a danger, by the way, of some who are anti-Semitic attaching themselves uh, to the Palestinian cause, not driven by a sense of justice, but by Nick nature. To... Uh, Nick sorry. Fuentes. Nick Fuentes well, exactly. is doing very, that. Very yeah. good example. You, you see some of these on social media as well. We need to guard against those people. It's very important that we do. Um, so, you, you know, but, and there is actually, undeniably, a rise in anti-Semitism uh, in the way that after, like, uh, you know, 9-11, you've got a, a rise of Islamophobia. So it, it is real. It has to be guarded against. But what they're, what's been, what's actually happening is... False charges of anti-Semitism are being used, including against Jewish people, in a very cynical and desperate attempt to shield Israel, which is not the Jewish people, from very grave charges of war crimes and indeed genocide. And it is very, very dangerous on for, for, the, for the reasons that I just set, set out. So let me ask you this. When I try to game out how this ends, I mean, I hate to say it, but the most likely scenario 
I assume, would be basically the continuation of the status quo, so the continuation of the slaughter. And then you have people like Ben Gavir and Smotrich who what they're saying is going to happen is very likely to come to fruition, namely that at the very least, North Gaza gets resettled, uh, potentially by the time all said and done, maybe South Gaza too. You have this voluntary relocation plan that they're floating, which is really just a fancy term for we're going to ethnically cleanse them because it's not really voluntary if your house just got bombed and it no longer exists. Um, I think looking at, especially with the United States and Biden's inability to try to reel Israel in in any meaningful way. You get an article every other day about how this time Biden's really pissed and he's really shaking his finger at them strongly and saying, guys, please bomb a little nicer. None of that's real because we're still sending the money. We're still sending them weapons. So I think the most likely scenario is this just sort of continues on its on the path we're on. Um, what do you think is the most likely scenario? Like, how do you think this ends? Do you agree with my pessimistic take or is there a way out of this that could uh, mitigate the absolute disastrous apocalyptic harm? In the here and now, I have to say, I do tend towards your pessimistic outlook, um, which is why it's so important those of us with the platform keep talking about Gaza and Palestine as loudly as we can. And the, the reason I have a pessimistic view is I think a lot of people have this naive belief that when we talk about many of the worst case scenarios, well, surely the US would never allow that. Surely, the, I mean, look, look what's happened. Look at what's happened. I mean, you're literally talking now about one in 69 of every Gazan killed in a violent way. The point, the other point is we know from wars that the vast majority of people do not die because of the violence. They die because of everything else. So Professor Debbie Sridhar is a professor of public health at Edinburgh University did a horrifying article in The Guardian, which made it clear that on the current trajectory, a quarter of the Gazan population will die within a year because of the collapse of the healthcare system alone. Mm. That's what we're talking oh. about. And what we're talking about is people who can't get clean water. I mean, look, you just have to go through statistics. You know, how many, what, I think there's 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza. How many, how many women are giving birth a day? Can you just imagine how many people are giving birth in the current circumstances? Mm. I mean, can, you know, can you, can you think, you know, you think about all the people who've got cancer in Gaza. Can you think about all the people who've got health conditions, like heart conditions in, in, in Gaza? Who, who, there was no medical treatment for those. If the war suddenly ended now, and you suddenly got a massive emergency humanitarian um, um, uh, program into Gaza, almost certainly tens of thousands of extra people would still die in the mm -hmm. here and now. Because you've, because you've got the total de destruction of infrastructure. You know, the very point about getting aid through roads which don't exist anymore. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. Betzlem have a horrible article about how Israel is starving um, Gaza, even, you know, through, through you know, because of things like that. Um, it, you know, they're not going to allow people back into northern Gaza. Uh, they're going to keep coming up with excuses why they can't. But in any case, it's been destroyed. It's not habitable. It's, in, it's in, inhabitable. And what I think is the likely uh, uh, end game at the moment is they destroy Gaza completely, as they're, you know, they've achieved to a large degree anyway. And then they go, well, it's not hospitable anymore. I guess we're going to have to get these people out in the name of humanitarianism. Okay. And you basically say it's voluntary, but people are just going to get, people are desperate. You know, they're, they're watching, they, but what, they're going to spend months watching their kids live in these circumstances. You know, even though there's that sense of, you know, because the vast majority of people who live in Gaza are already refugees. The vast majority of them are those who were kicked out of their homes in 1948 and their descendants. And a lot of them feel we can't leave because if we leave, we'll never come back. 
But if you've got, they've already gone through three months of this. What's another three months? What's another nine months of this? So I think the danger is you will get the mass ethnic cleansing of a strip of land, no bigger than East London, which has already had about three Hiroshima bonds dropped on it, um, and which continues to suffer the most, you know, where 80% of the hungriest people on earth are in Gaza. So we have to yell about this because a historic crime has already been committed, which will already kill tens of thousands of extra people, even if it ended immediately. Um, and it's our responsibility to make sure they don't get away with it in the longer term, um, and that's, you know, I interviewed um, Gideon Levy, the very courageous Israeli journalist. He made the point, this will end when the US turns against Israel. And, and I think there's a lot in that. And that requires the politicization of a generation which will come of age, looked at this historic crime, and eventually will have enough power to say this, um, the, you know, US support for what Israel does now ends immediately. And I know that's a bleak thing to say, because I wanted to end now. But I don't see how it possibly ends now, given the dynamics at play. Um, Ryan Grimm tweeted this out recently, and it really struck a chord with me because I feel the same way. He said, I, early on in this conflict, I told myself many of the people who were refusing to condemn what Israel was doing to the Palestinians and denouncing critics of it as anti-Semitic would wake up when tens of thousands were dead and the scale of the slaughter was undeniable, with some noble exceptions, that hasn't happened. And to your point, you know, anyone who's saying like, oh, the U.S., they say they're opposed to ethnic cleansing. They say they don't want the Palestinians to leave the, leave the Gaza Strip. Like, sure, Smotrich, sure, Ben Gavir, sure, Bibi, sure, they want to do that. But the U.S. is going to keep them from doing it. Like, I don't know why you would think that at this point. Like, what would give you any sense that the U.S. would push back on anything that Netanyahu is doing. I mean, we said it out outright. We said it's ironclad. Like, the support is ironclad. It's unconditional. There are no red lines. So, I, you know, their plan is going according to exactly how they laid out. How are, can think, people even go back to the northern Gaza Strip at this point? As you said, everything's destroyed. I just watched a video of, you know, a university getting blown up for no reason. It's just destruction for the sake of destruction. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's, not, it's not a place you can live, northern Gaza, at all anymore. And it's not just that, it's the agriculture which be, has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. Where are they going to grow the food? I mean, they're already talking about flooding the tunnels. The UN Special Rapporteur on Access to Water has pointed out that if they do that in an aquifer, by the way, which already, the water in Gaza is already not of, you would not be able to, it would not, you know, it's, it's already contaminated and dangerous before this began. But if they flood the aquifer, then there won't be any way to, with, with, uh, with seawater, they won't, no one will be able to drink any water in Gaza anyway, ever again. Oh, well, not for the foreseeable for, for, for many, many years. So, so you know, the, the fact is, you're right, this is a historic crime, which the US keep administration will occasionally do hand-wringing on purely for a domestic audience yep. to try and kind of make progressives think, well, you know, they're obviously not that happy about it and they're doing their best in the circumstances. No, they're not. They've got huge leverage. You know, I, I interviewed Jeremy Scarl, the brilliant investigative journalist. He made the point that if you, this could end in one phone call. Joe Biden could just ring, that would be the end of it. But he's chosen not to. He's, he's used no leverage whatsoever. And Benjamin Netanyahu is rightly on record boasting about the fact that Israel can do anything because he knows how to work the US and the US will never push back. The other point I'll just make about what Ryan Grimm made, the point he made is, my, my fury will... It's not, do you know what, it's the people. There's the people who cheerleaded this. And I have to know, by the way, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but a lot of them have gone pretty quiet now. You know, yeah. you tweet about it now, they're not piling on in the same way at all. And, you know, and I think those people now should be considered... 
you know, morally depraved beyond redemption. And in a just society, those people would be driven from polite society, and a lot of them would face charges under the Genocide Convention of 1948 for incitement and complicity. But them aside, it's the people who wouldn't, who will not speak out now. The people who haven't used their public platforms to speak out, I have nothing but burning contempt. I will never forgive those people. Those people, if you have a platform and you are aware of what is happening in Gaza and you haven't spoken out because you're scared or because you think it's all so complicated, all the rest of it, you are a disgrace and you should be shamed for it. And I think we need to start shaming people who have refused to speak out, including people who regard themselves as progressives, um, or maybe they've done an occasional bit of hand-wringing. Isn't the world so sad? You know, is there a natural disaster to hit Gaza? It hasn't. A mm. massacre of historic proportions facilitated by the US and UK and other Western governments has happened, is continuing to happen, and those who don't use their public platforms to speak out are complicit in every single death, and I think we should be clear about that. Oh, and the one last question that I have for you is, I know you spent a t lot of time uh, evaluating South Africa's case at the ICJ. I know you also took a look at uh, Israel's, quote-unquote, defense. Um, do you have any hope that there will be some sort of injunction issued by the ICJ? Do you have any hope that if there was, that it would make any sort of a difference here? So I, I interviewed a really good um, uh, specialist, he's an academic, he's a, a lecturer who is based in kind of post-colonial kind of approach, uh, but very clear about how international law works and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the fear that he gave me, he was really, I forget his name, but the, I've got the video up on my channel, the, the, which is, firstly, you know, the point is this was never supposed to happen. He said the danger is, you know, you can't see that, you know, can the master's tool take down the master's house, is the way he put it. Mm. That international law is intentionally rigged in favour, obviously, of, um, of Western states. And you were never supposed to have a situation where, the, like, 10 years ago, he said this wouldn't have even happened. The mm. global south, you know, its power is so limited. Um, but the point he made, I suppose, the danger is you will get uh, because obviously, in theory, the case goes on for years. You, it, it gets stuck in the ICJ for years. But the issue is you can get provisional rulings, uh, which has happened in the past. Um, and those provisional rulings, the danger is they're kind of caveated uh, to oblivion. Um, and you end up with some kind of recommendations, which everyone can kind of seize on to claim a victory. But there isn't the kind of this is a genocide and uh, the war needs to immediately end. Um, and that... The danger is they will rule, which is Israel's case, uh, what I guess legally the most compelling part, if we use existing law they could come up with, is, for example, that Hamas isn't a state and therefore it is not party to the Genocide Convention and to the rulings of the ICJ. So if the ICJ can order a Israel to end its military operations, but it can't order Hamas to order its military operations. And on that case, they might argue and use that as an argument to say, we can't make a ruling on ending the military onslaught. So that's the danger. But we'll see. But that, my fear is you will get provisional rulings, which might have condemnations of various aspects of what Israel has done, but won't go in the direction that I think we would like to. And we've got to remember the ICJ is you know, part of an international legal structure which is rigged in favour of Western states. And the fact that South Africa even got a case there in the first place is pretty astounding. Yeah. I also fear the fact that there's really no enforcement mechanism 
Uh, there was there are plenty of examples in the past. Nicaragua comes to mind where the U.S. was basically found uh, guilty of arming Contra death squads and the ICJ ruled against us. But then we just took that ruling to the Security Council and effectively vetoed it and said, like, we don't care that you just found us guilty. We're not going to do anything about it. And, you know, they don't have an army. to. It's not like the ICJ has an army to enforce anything. So I just hope that that's the thing. It looks like international law is broken. I hope that that's not proven by the rest of this case. I hope that they issue no, an injunction yeah. and then it holds up. That, that's a really, look, it's a really important point you made there, which is obviously what happens is they, the rulings have to go to the Security Council and the US just can veto the whole thing anyway. But even that said, you're, you're absolutely right, but that said, if the ICJ issued really damning rulings, I mean, one of them, by the way, is I keep mentioning the, gen the Genocide Convention of 1948. Israel is violating that convention by not prosecuting those who engage in incitement. And again, people should really read the Genocide Convention of 1948. The reason it makes incitement a offence is because of the recognition that genocides always begin with words. So if you get people in public positions inciting genocide, that makes genocidal behaviour far more likely to happen. It's in fact key and instrumental to all genocides. Um, and Israel is already in violation of that because, you know, they haven't said what, the, the argument is very clear. You might say that these ministers, they're not in the war cabinet or whatever, even though they clearly influence the behaviour of the soldiers, and, and actually Benjamin Netanyahu and the defence minister have engaged in genocidal rhetoric, and they're in the war cabinet. But even so, you haven't sacked those people, let alone prosecuted them, which is a violation of the Genocide Convention, which places a legal obligation on signatories to prosecute those who engage in genocidal incitement. So they really should make some damning rulings, even on that basis of incitement, which is a criminal act under the Convention of 948. So I do think there is, if they came up with rulings about genocide, then you're right, the US could veto it, but I have to say it would cause the mother of all problems because we would say very loudly that it's been proven there's a genocide taking place and there's the danger then of politicians making themselves criminally complicit where if, even if it's not in the here and now, you can end up in a situation where you get... It, if the tides turn in 10, 20 years, who's to say those politicians won't, won't suddenly be under arrest for historic investigations into the genocide of Gaza in 2023, 2024? So I think it causes them difficulty because the country's arming and supporting Israel and the politicians will be in a very vulnerable position and they don't know how the tides will turn if they are found to be complicit in a genocide. So I actually I think it would be a huge victory, but we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. I guess I'm just a little jaded by the war on terror era where you had George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and they would commit 17 crimes before breakfast and still get away with it. Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay. But uh, let me ask you this. This is my final question for you. So um, if I was emperor for... I'm about to ask you to be emperor of the world for a day here <laughs> and give me what Leo you would do. If I <laughs> was in Joe Biden's shoes or if I was emperor of the day and I could... Uh, had total power... I would obviously, first things first, cut off weapons to Israel. Then I would cut off the money. Then I would allow a condemnation through at the UN. Then I would sanction them. Then I, of course, would arrest them for war crimes, Netanyahu, Ben Gavir, Smotrich, all the ones who are involved. Um, and, but then in terms of dealing with uh, the, the facts on the ground, um, I feel like having the Palestinian Authority take over governance of Gaza and then immediately create a sovereign Palestinian state. That would sort of be step one in the process to move forward. If you were emperor for a day, how would you handle it? 
Well, the Palestinian Authority isn't a solution there, unfortunately, because the Palestinian Authority is very unpopular in the West Bank, uh, where it rules. Um, because, it, you know, people have to remember why Hamas won the elections back in 2005, 2006, sorry, 2006 elections. Um, and they won because Fatah was seen as, A, extremely corrupt, B, very authoritarian, and C, essentially, it was seen as a adjunct to the Israeli occupation. So Edward Said, the brilliant Palestinian um, uh, American writer, who obviously died a few years ago, wish he was here, had some extreme lots of wisdom. But you know, you should read what he, you know, people should read what he wrote about the Palestinian Authority and all the rest of it. And um, you know, Hamas is a product of the failures of the Palestinian Authority, which has very little political or moral legitimacy um, in the West Bank. You know, I've spoken to people from Gaza who are very hostile to Hamas and, you know, obviously have no sympathy with Hamas as a, as a political movement. Their argument is Fatah is more authoritarian than Hamas is. Um, so I don't think, you know, the idea of imposing the Palestinian authority in Gaza, which is what the US is trying to suggest, I just don't think is a runner. It doesn't actually have consent from the Palestinian population. Um, you would have to, you know, basically you know, as things stand, uh, you, you would have to have an Israeli government forced by international law to end the occupation. Um, and the only way of people, you know, because it's interesting actually what happened with Hamas. I interviewed uh, Avi Shlaim, who's a brilliant Arab Jewish professor of history, um, is, you know, you would have to have probably some government of national unity, um, which is what originally you had with Hamas and Fatah. Um, because what had happened, and Tony Blair, of all people, not someone I normally favorably quote, he made, in, in 2018, he said the West made a mistake by placing the siege on Gaza, um, and instead of, because elements of Hamas were moving away from the Charter in supporting a two-state solution. Obviously, in an ideal world, I'd have a left-wing, secular, progressive, socialist Palestine as part of a socialist federation of the world or something. That, that's not, you can't just magic that into existence. Um, so I think you'd have to have some form of national unity government. Um, uh, because, as I've said, if you just impose the Palestinian Authority, I don't think the Palestinian people would accept that at all. So just to just to follow up, so I'm sure you agree with cut off the weapons, cut off the money, allow oh, yeah, condemnation sorry, yeah. through the UN, oh, yeah. sanction them. Yeah, arms yeah. embargo. I do the South Africa model. I mean, that's what we're fighting for. But boycott, divestment, and sanctions. That's the movement I support. Uh, which, it, but in practice, if that was had state power, you'd immediately end all weapons to Israel, um, and then um, they would be forced to come up with an accommodation. They would have no choice. Yeah, and I've heard, I've heard people float the idea. I'm blanking on the person's name now, but there are a bunch of Palestinian political prisoners who Marwan are viewed. That's that's the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who they say this could be somebody who could you know, lead a future Palestinian state. I mean, I follow the lead of uh, Norm Finkelstein, who talks about, you know, the only way that you can really think about this is on the uh, the merits of international law. There's UN resolution that's introduced basically every year that sets, you know, borders and resolution of the conflict along the lines of international law. So that seems to me the best on, on, on direction well, to go quickly, in. Yeah, I'll if we're not going to get the, the socialist utopia that you and I would prefer. <laughs> no, but to, to be fair, oh good, just finally, uh, Marwan Baghouti is a Palestinian political prisoner who's been incarcerated uh, by Israel. And actually, he is someone, if according to the polling, would actually do better than either the president, the um, Abbas, Fatah, or, or Hamas. So if, ideally, what you'd have is you'd get Marwan Baghouti released, 
and then you'd have a free election. And I think he would win the election and he'd become the president. And he's a very unifying figure. So, you know, it's not a case of having to have Hamas or, or Fatah. You could have, you know, um, Marwan Bagouti, for example. Gotcha. Yep. Trust the democratic process. Of course, the West yes. isn't good at that either. <laughs> um, Owen, tell people where they can uh, find you, especially on YouTube. Uh, so, yeah, YouTube, just type in Owen Jones. Uh, Owen Jones Talks, I think it was. I don't know why it came up with that name years ago. It was when it was at The Guardian, and then I had to take control of it. So, yeah, Owen Jones Talks on YouTube, and then Instagram, Twitter. I post all my videos there as well. Maybe not Facebook, though, because he'll be very hard to <laughs> yeah. find there. No one will ever see my content, so no point. Waste of time. Um, Owen, thank you. And I just wanted to say, I think you've been doing, you know, really phenomenal job covering this conflict yep. and your work has right been incredibly important. So right back um, at you. You're so important you. in the U.S. because, as I said, unless we get the U.S. public to shift, then nothing will change, I think. So no pressure. You're going to have to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Owen. We appreciate it. Take care, Owen. Right. See you soon. All right. So that was Owen Jones. Um I don't know if you saw this article the other day about the new thing that the U.S. is floating uh, if oh, for the post-war period. Yes, this was in the uh, Huffington Post, the one that the Biden administration— No, so there was one oh, okay. after that. I All know right. which one you're talking about. That was actually the first one that was floated, which everybody made fun of. This guy, McGurk, McGurt, yeah. Dirk the Squirt McGurt, whatever his name is. <laughs> this, McGurk is his name. This guy wanted to do the Jared Kushner, Donald Trump strategy mm -hmm. of like, let's just push forward with the Saudi normalization deal so Israel and Saudi Arabia can become buddy-buddy, and then Biden can do a victory tour right. in the Middle East and, the and brag about this. was really the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But mm -hmm. since then, now, they're, now they added a twist to it, and the twist that they added to it was— why not sort of have like MBS, as Adam Johnson calls it, as Pope of the Arabs and sort of have him lead like a, a two-state solution where it's Mr. not really a state. It's Mr. Bantustan. Bonesaw. Mr. We're Bonesaw. We're going to give him more power. But like it would be like he's in control of, of the territories of, of the Bantu stands that mm -hmm. would be the Palestinian territories. So it's like after they got made fun of relentlessly for that first thing they floated, they sort of tweaked it slightly uh, well, with I'm, the second round. But all that is so— It's such—it's so— it's so fantastical. Like, it's almost not even worth engaging in the details. I because I, I think you actually sent this to me while we were talking. New uh, AP report, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he's informed the U.S. he opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state as part of any post-war You have to force scenario. them. You have to force them. And, and, they, and Biden doesn't want to force we're them. not going He's to. not going to force them. He doesn't care. He doesn't. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, they may go out and say, oh, we really would like a Palestinian state. Please, pretty please. Netanyahu has spent his entire career guaranteeing that there is no Palestinian state. This is the the burning core of his ideology, apart from his own acquisition of power, is no Palestinian state. And you're going to live in this fantasy land like this is somehow on the table without you being willing to lift a single finger to pressure the Israelis to do anything. And meanwhile, sending the... This is the thing that drives me insane. This came up a few times in our conversation with Owen about these, you know, hand-wringing art. Oh, they're really concerned about what's going on with Israel and Gaza, et cetera. You're sending them 2,000-pound bunker-busting bombs. Like, you don't get to pretend— You're going around Congress to send weapons. You don't get to pretend that you care about civilians and you're so worried about civilian death and you really want the best for the Palestinian people. When you are sending 2,000 pound bunker buster bombs into the most densely populated enclave on planet Earth, when our own military assessed in much less dense urban combat that that was wildly inappropriate. I mean, they really have made us look like the paragon of like ethical 
fighting, even though we had our own like war crimes and many issues, but it's nothing compared to what these people are doing. You get, don't get to send those bombs and then posture in any regard like you have care and concern for civilian life. But isn't it crazy that also this like sort of what they view as an ideal solution that they floated? Yeah. Like even that is stupid. Even if you implemented your ideal solution, I mean, it, MBS has literally a 5% approval rating in Gaza. The population of Saudi Arabia, over 95% of them say all Arab countries should cut all ties with Israel. Mm -hmm. So this is totally pie in the sky, stupid, doesn't add up, doesn't make sense. It's sort of racist because it's Pope of the Arabs can be MBS mm -hmm. type shit. Mm -hmm. And that's what they float as their ideal solution. Which means what's much, what's much more likely is what we've already discussed, which is the continuation of the genocide. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, it's hard to see how there is a positive resolution to any of this, given uh, the, you know, sick nature of Israeli leadership, given the madness that's taken hold in Israeli society, if we're being honest, just based on the polling, given the U.S.'s and primarily given the U.S.'s complete unwillingness, disinterest in doing anything to change course and protect lives and provide for a just outcome. That's right. I hate to end on such a somber note, but it is what it is. It is what it is. All right, guys, we love you all very much. Everybody do us a big favor. Please sign up for the show on Substack. Link below. If you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of every uh, interview and debate and discussion. And you get it a day early. Everybody else, you can sign up for free on Substack, and then you get the audio podcast version a day later, usually on Saturdays. We really appreciate your support. Thank you for everybody who does support us. It means the world. Uh, we've never talked to any advertisers for this show. We're very proud of that fact, so we try to crowdfund it from the ground up. And that's all we got for you guys this week. We'll talk to you next week.